Welcome to Both Sides TV. I'm super happy to welcome my guest today. It's actually somebody that I myself have funded, so I'm excited to spill all of his dirt and gossip today. It's Sam Rosen, CEO and founder of MakeSpace. Welcome. Thanks, Mark, for having me. So I thought I would start with at least a chance for you to explain what your business does. And I would maybe start this way. Uh, one of the most respected, thoughtful journalists uh, from one of the most thoughtful journals out there, Valleywag, <laughs> said that your business is not an internet business, it's a physical storage business, and that you're really just trying to make this a big show and aren't VC stupid to back you. So why am I so dumb? <laughs> I think it was actually the dumbest idea of 2014. Oh, I, dumbest idea yeah, yeah, of 2014. If, if I understand correctly. Well, uh, to tell you about MakeSpace and maybe that, I, I can't comment on what that person from ValueAg likes to do in his spare time, but uh, one in 10 Americans use uh, self-storage. Okay. And it's an increasingly frustrating problem. Um, you have to go to the storage unit in the first place, which is often on the other side of town, maybe in a seedy area. And the worst is you actually forget what you've stored away within minutes of, of storing something uh, in that unit. It's actually a really massive business. It's $24 billion a year. And here in Hollywood... $24 billion, uh, billion a year in what? In the U.S.? In U.S. dollars, yes. Okay. So no, but in, in, in the United the US States? Market, okay. yes. So it's $24 billion uh, in the U.S. market. And that's actually roughly twice the size of Hollywood. But people don't really think about storage as this sexy business because twice it's Twice the size of Hollywood, what yeah. do you mean? So Hollywood, if I understand correctly, the revenue is generated from Hollywood about $12 billion a year. So it's the gross revenue for the self-storage business about twice that okay. of Hollywood. Uh, entertainment industry is significantly larger than that, but that's okay. okay. $24 billion is an enormously large yeah. market. So look, it's an enormously mar large market that has not been revolutionized in 40 or 50 years. Okay. And what my problem was I actually had to visit a self-storage unit. I hated going in the first place. And more importantly, I forgot what was there in that unit right away. So what MakeSpace does is we're building a national con uh, consumer storage company that customers actually love. And the way it works is very simple. You come to our website, you schedule a reservation online. We come to your home with uh, cartons for you to fill up. They're three cubic foot bins. You fill them up with all the possessions that you'd be putting about 70% that normally goes into a storage unit anyway. Uh, you pack them up and we take those bins back to our, uh, our warehouse. And the unique part about it, so that you never forget what you stored away, we actually create a digital catalog for you of all the items based on a photo that we'll take on your behalf. And we're actually releasing an iPhone application in the next 60 to 90 days, so you can individually tag every single item, uh, and a text description that you've provided on the box. And that way, whenever you want something back from storage, you simply go onto your account, look through what you have, uh, push a button, and we'll deliver it back to so you. So hopefully Jennifer Lawrence is not a customer. Um, <laughs> Her photos would have been a lot safer yeah, with us. Just kidding. Uh, that was a good, good line. Uh, so It'd be a good billboard, too, but uh, my PR team wasn't happy with it. They that. weren't happy with that. <laughs> so how did you meet your investors in the first place? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer in, in a lot of the things that you've written about, and one of them was invest in lines, not dots. And we met about four years ago. Um, and which, if, if I could say so, just sure. for anyone who doesn't know the analogy, the analogy is if you take an x-axis, which is time, and a y-axis, which is maybe how our meeting goes or sure. how good you are at presenting or your performance, it's a dot. Yep. And if you have a good day, I think, wow, what a superstar. And if it kind of sucks, I think, well, uh, kind of a putz, right? Yeah. And, but the next time I meet, I get a measure. Did you hire the people you said you were going to hire? I get a measure. 
did Google announce they were going to crush you, but you found a way of jujitsuing your business or whatever. And over time, you build relationships. And sorry to say so, but one more thing is, like, I think there's so much bad advice in the market today. Uh, some of which, for example, Paul Graham says at Y Combinator, he said, the goal of a VC should be to make as fast a decision as they can. That ought to be their differentiator. Now, if a VC makes a bad decision on you, okay, they make 20 bets a year. Yeah. And if they didn't figure out that you're not hardworking or resilient or smart enough or a resilient leader, they write off their investment. If you, as an entrepreneur, make a bad decision because you rush to take an investor without having investor lines, you're stuck with them for life. There's no divorce clause from your investors, right? You're stuck with them. So I think lines matter way more for entrepreneurs and anyone who advises you to try to find an investor who rushes into the investment, I think is suspect. Yeah, in and, their and you actually know both sides of that intimately well with me. So the, the, our first interaction was actually, and I'm sure you remember it, uh, very well. I reached out to you after I just left in, uh, investment banking. No, it was, you were on my blog. You well, I was commenting I, on the blog, yeah. of course, but the first interaction was I reached out to you because I said, uh, there's a company in LA that I'm thinking about joining and I'm actually flying to interview uh, in like a week or two. Can I grab 20 minutes of your time? But the important thing about the blog that I want to say is I get so many random emails like that. And I'm not saying I'm special. Yeah. When you have a checkbook, suddenly you get a lot but of they, emails. Yep. But what made me say, I, yes, I will do this, is I kind of felt like I knew you. I, I luckily and, had a, memor a memorable Twitter handle at the time. Yeah, you did. It was <laughs> at SIR. That's right. And, uh, sir. Yep. And, uh, no, but the thing is, like, on social media, you get so many people at messaging. And so someone will say to me on social media, oh, yeah, you know, you wrote me back and you commented. And I do actually click on everyone who at messages me just to see who they are. Yeah. I just do, I, who is this person, right? And then over time, you start to recognize some of them, but there's so much volume there. I always tell people, if you want to build an intimate relationship with your venture capital you know, person or whatever, if you comment on their blog, not every day. Like, right. that's a bit creepy. But like every now and again, they'll notice you. They'll notice you way more there than they will right. on Twitter. But anyway, that's how I knew who so you were. So I was commenting on the blog. I sent you an email and said, hey, I'm thinking about joining this LA company. And I, I remember you saying to me, you know, you're a New York guy, you obviously smart, you came from banking, like I'm happy to give you 20 minutes. And actually you squeezed me in with a, a meeting with another entrepreneur that we're both uh, good friends with, or we're good friends with. And long story short, we kept the relationship from that point. You gave me advice about not joining the company. I went back to New York. You said to me, if you ever want to move to LA or work for one of my portfolio companies or any company in Los Angeles, keep in touch. And then, and importantly, we're friends. He passed away. Yeah. I just don't want people to think no, that we uh, suddenly. Yeah, but it was it was a very fateful meeting because that person, Jody Sherman, actually helped literally get me into the very first accelerator when I was up at 500 Startups up north by a strong recommendation to another investor. Of but mine, here's Steve the interesting McClure. thing, is, and I'm sorry to jump in with so much advice here, sure. but this is so important for people to understand. Some people will tell you, again fraudulently, that you shouldn't raise capital until you're absolutely ready to run a really tight eight-week process, compete, get all VCs to compete against each other, and then be done. Right. And I call that funding season. And the problem with funding season, aside from the fact that you really authentically don't get to know anybody, the problem with funding season is 
if you meet VCs over a long period of time, they're super well connected. And if they like you and they think you're smart, they will help you. I mean, nine, well, I was going to say nine times out of 10, but 99 times out of 100, they're not going to fund you even if you're great just because VCs don't have that much capacity. Right. But they're helpful. And so I wasn't looking to fund you. You didn't have a startup. Right. I connect you to Jody Sherman. He's a, he was a super helpful guy. Sure. And it's like, you're a friend of Mark. You're a friend yeah. of mine. I'll help you. And that's what you get out of meeting investors and building relationships with them over the years. Incredibly helpful. That's right. So long story short, I pitched Dave McClure an idea that I had worked on previous to, to working on MakeSpace. I was in the first batch of the uh, 500 Startups Accelerator program. I was up in the Bay. And we always kind of kept in touch in, <laughs> in a slightly persistent way without being annoying. And I'm going to let you tell that story, but sure. why did you decide to join an accelerator? So I decided to join an accelerator because at the time, uh, I needed, it was 2011, and I needed that first $25,000, that first $50,000. And, and you were coming from New York, so I guess it helped you and build relationships. And the second thing I was going to say is I wanted to be in the Valley. And one of the things that you said to me was, even if you go back to LA, or actually at that coffee shop, whether you stay in LA or you go back to New York, uh, San Francisco is ground zero. And you said, you should take the opportunity to spend time in, in San Francisco. And I remember when I got this opportunity from Dave McClure, I was involved with someone at the time, and I had personal reasons why to stay in New York. But it was the ground zero for being uh, in, in the hotbed for tech startups. So that was a huge driver for me to go up. Uh, and actually, I'm probably one of few entrepreneurs who have lived in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and in New York. What? did you get out of that? Do you feel you met interesting people there? Did, did any of those relationships stick and become helpful? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think beyond anything, it was, it was building the network for, the, for literally my next project. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to say it was a stepping stone because it was extremely valuable to me. Well, it was a stepping stone only in so much as that company didn't work. That's right? exactly right. So I was going to say, the company didn't work out and it was a stepping stone to the next one. And I didn't use that capital as a, I'm going to burn through this $400,000 because I made it last about 18 months. I really, really, really tried. But the beautiful thing about entrepreneurship in this country is that you can fail. You can fail with grace. And investors will continue to support you. What was the original idea? So the original idea was called Speakergram. And I was running events. Was that the first idea? That was the second idea. Oh, that was I the thought. first. Oh, it was? Okay. The there was, was a second. There was a second. That they was were the, both the pivot bad? at the end. Okay. <laughs> yes, they, uh, <laughs> they were. Um, the first idea, I was actually throwing events in New York City uh, for graduates of the University of Virginia, where okay. I went to undergrad. And I wanted to meet, there's, if you can't get into the party, you should throw your own. That was right. my, my thinking. Smart. So I started throwing events that I would invite, or try to invite Tiki Barber, Katie Couric, uh, uh, Alexis Ohanian, the founder of Reddit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All people that, I, that were UVA successful entrepreneurs in their own right, and that I wanted to come and get a community around. The problem was none of them responded to my emails. So I thought this must be an access problem, like this must be a structured information problem. That simply, I don't think they have the time, but they would say yes or no if there was an easier way. So I created almost like a ticketing system for them to accept those requests and say yes or no or decline. And then if they, if they declined, it would get sent to somebody else. And we got companies like Foursquare, LinkedIn, uh, Eventbrite using our service. But more importantly, it really started to get my name out there because we built a product that people actually wanted to use. Yeah. And it got, called the attention of Dave McClure, in fact, who used it himself. And ultimately, it didn't work. Did yeah. you pivot to a different idea? We pivoted to a different idea, actually, towards the very end. We had about 
200, we had about half our cash left. And what was that idea? So it was called Scaffold. And at the time, uh, what Scaffold was building was drop-in identity verification solutions for peer-to-peer -peer, uh, services. So literally Airbnb had only booked 2 million nights in total at that time. Mm -hmm. And we saw that there was this massive amount of peer-to-peer -peer services. Uber X didn't exist, Lyft didn't exist. In fact, I met the founders when they were still running another company called Zimride. I remember well. And we, we said people need almost like their own social credit score. Yeah. And for us, it was actually totally unrelated to the business, but we pitched our existing investors. We said, we can give you the money back or yeah. you can keep the money and we'll work on this business. And they unanimously said, look, and, and we've talked about this, um, none, none of them had that much money in the business yeah. that there was no one really saying yes or no to our decision. They said, do whatever you want. Right. So uh, we actually, in July of 2012, we decided to shut the business down, me and my former business partner. And you were out of cash then? We actually had about 75 grand in cash left. And I said, we're not going anywhere, let's return the capital. How did you decide your first idea wasn't gonna work? I mean, how did you know it was time to pivot? You know, a, a New York venture capitalist once said to me, I'll never forget it, I was on a bus on the Muni in, in San Francisco, and he said to me, Sam, you, you have so much potential, and I really feel like you need to hit a home run. It was right after I tried to raise a significant round of funding. And times were good then, it wasn't like times were hard. Yeah. And he said to me, you know, the only thing you have is your time. Yeah. So if you're not swinging for the fences, you yeah. know, what are you optimizing for? And I wasn't optimizing for a business that provided a great lifestyle. I wasn't, you know, I'm a hockey player and or I love fitness, so it wasn't like I was uh, teaching hockey classes to kids, which would be a lot of fun, or I'd get a lot of personal satisfaction out of. In fact, both my brother and sister are teachers. Okay. But for me, I realized like the return that I expected out of this, it just, it started to add up and my business partner felt the same way too. Like, what are we doing with our time? And, and how many people were, was it, it just, was just the two three, of you? It was three, we had a, we had a third employee, a uh, first employee. Did ever, was it unanimous? Everyone kind of felt that and felt like it wasn't gonna work or it wasn't fun or the wasn't? The employee was very young, he was right okay, out of so college. so it was you and your partner? It was me and my business partner. Right. Yeah. And were you lock, step, and barrel on all the decisions, who to raise capital from, when to pivot, when to shut down? That's a huge difference between then and now. At the time, you know, and I know we, you have a blog post also about co-founders and founders and, and the difference between the two and potentially why one would be preferred over the other. Um, but at the time, as having a co-founder, I had to make decisions with that the, other person. The, the, it, for anyone watching, what I would say is it's called the co-founder mythology, if you want to search it on both sides of the table, co-founder mythology, right. and there's a video that I gave a talk at Stanford that talks about this. And, and it's fantastic, right? You know, obviously there's economics and stuff, but there's also decisions, and I feel like at that time, there was no clear decision, because there was only two people, and there was no board yeah. to get involved, or no uh, one investor who took a, a huge position in us to make a decision almost like a third party, yeah. and as a result, we were, we pretty much were are running our wheels just in place. So long story short, the company shut down, I couldn't pay my $2,000 a month rent bill in New York City, and I started to put up on Airbnb. So I took a, I, I had never traveled before. I put myself through college. I didn't have that much money, despite having a Wall Street uh, uh, right a job right after school. I paid off a lot of my, my student loans. Right. And I, I had never traveled. So I said, okay, my startup just shut down. I'm 27 years old, or 26 years old. When am I ever going to be able to actually take a trip? So I put my place up on Airbnb, and someone booked it for like seven weeks. Right. So I took off, as we talked about, your father yeah. uh, is Colombian. I took off and went to Colombia. And while on that trip, it was actually, uh, I'll never forget it, it was right around the time uh, when Obama was getting elected in the second election. Mm -hmm. um, and I really wanted to come back for the election. And at the same time, almost uh, a week before, 
I started hearing rumors that this big superstorm hurricane was, was going to hit New York. Okay. And I was extremely concerned for an ex-girlfriend of mine who had an apartment that the previous year was in Hoboken, New Jersey, which is like a bathtub. It just floods. So I, uh, I was in touch with her. And she said, oh, should I worry about this storm? I said, no, no, the year before with Hurricane Irene, you were, you were totally OK. And so to get that straight, you yep. were super worried about her, <laughs> but you told her, don't worry. Yeah, I was super, I was super worried, like thinking this about it. This is an ex-girlfriend, keep in mind. It was. I was super, don't worry. Yeah, let the hurricane hit. No, I was super, Make sure your boyfriend's over. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, no, it's great. Good one. Um, it was, it, I was worried, but because I also felt the responsibility at some point. I'm just saying, teasing. Yeah. So the, the hurricane hit, and she had about two and a half feet of water. And I, I felt terrible, right? I told her not only don't worry about it, you'll be okay, but I, I still had uh, feelings for this person. So I, I left Columbia. I kicked my Airbnb residence out because the apartment didn't have power. We went back, and the place was condemned by FEMA. Is that, is that legal that you can rent it out and then kick people out? Uh, they chose to leave at the same time because okay. they wanted they wanted to go above 34th Street. Sorry, I'm outing you on everything. <laughs> yeah, you made me sound like a felon. Did you do a background check before you started? <laughs> so actually, I ran a background check business. It's okay. Oh, I thought um, you were going to say you ran a background check on me, <laughs> which is okay. That's okay. Um, so I I basically you know moved all of the things that were in this. FEMA condemned apartment into self-storage. Okay. And you know, we, it's funny, we had been in touch through words with friends or yeah. through Twitter. And by this time you had told me, Sam, I love you, but I, I don't love your business. So call me at the next one. Yeah. And it was about two weeks after Hurricane Sandy. And one of the big reasons why I had this idea was uh, my ex also lost her car in the flood, uh, yeah. which was totally destroyed. And I never was able to get back to that storage unit to get the five or 10 things that we needed for the upcoming winter. In yeah. fact, she literally that night said, I don't know where my snow boots are. So we sat down in the coffee shop at Witchcraft on, yeah. uh, in Flatiron. I remember. And you said to me, what are you thinking about? And I said, I don't know. My, my, my startup just failed. I just came back from Columbia. I just went through this whole disaster. I just applied to Y Combinator with an idea and didn't get in. But I wish I applied with another idea. And you said to me, tell me the idea that you didn't apply to Y Combinator with. And I told you the story. So rewind a little bit sure. and we'll come to the rest in a moment and talk about maybe some of the lessons you learned along the way. Yeah. But if you could choose an adjective for how you think people would describe you, what would you say? Persistent. Persistent. I think that's a good one. I will tell you what I think most people would say is hustler. Mm. Not as in you're a shyster, which yeah. could be what they were thinking, and not as in you're into porn, but, um, but like you always found a way to network and get beyond people's ability to say no, partly out of charm, yeah. partly out of hustle, partly out of having an edge for how you did it. I remember one day being in San Francisco, and I had a commitment to speak in Menlo Park, Menlo Park? no, Mountain View, yep at 500 startups. I had agreed to Dave, I would come down and, you know, I didn't have a car there, so I was either gonna Caltrain or uh, take an Uber. Uber was pretty new back then. I was gonna Uber and some guy messages me and says, I heard you're gonna speak down there and can I give you a ride? I saw you check in at SFO. <laughs> so you're also a stalker. Yep. Um, sure. It's, it's the, the, the we were friends, though. You, you, no, let, you, you let me into your stalking world. <laughs> so as it happens, I connected with almost nobody on Foursquare yep. for exactly this reason. Yep. Uh, because not that I don't want to see people, but 
when I go to San Francisco, I'm often there for two days. I have back-to-back -back meetings. Maybe I can sneak out a bit time to like network a little bit yep. with people. And oh, by the way, I have family and friends there too. Um, and if I announce it, then it's like, hey, you're here. Why didn't you call me? Whatever. Sure. So anyway, I usually was pretty careful about that. So you let one slip. It's okay. I let one slip. And you offered to give me a ride. And the entire drive down, you pitched me your business. And uh, it was a little bit nauseating. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. You uh, sat me down at yeah. Shabu Shabu yeah. on Castro Street. Yeah. Do you remember? No, on that day. We had on that day okay. because you wanted a meal before you were Oh, here. you're right. So you sat me down at your favorite restaurant, yeah. which was like a, the hot pot. If you don't know Shabu Shabu, it's a great Japanese <laughs> dish. I, I lived in Japan for a while, and there's a great one on Castro Street in Mountain View. And you sat me down, and you looked at me straight, and I was just you know smiling the whole fucking yeah. night. Oops, yeah. the whole yeah. way down. <laughs> well, I'll get censored. Um, you you sat me down, and I was smiling the whole way down. And then you broke the hard news right across the table at Shabu Shabu, which was... And the hard news was... I love you, but I'm not investing in this business. Okay. <laughs> you, yeah. you, you waited the whole time. It was, yeah, it, was it wasn't a great time. idea. Uh, but I told you that. You did. I'm not always right about it, but... No, but you're right at least I, at least I At least I tell people. Um, so then, what happened after coffee? So what happened after coffee was you said to me, look, we are a seed stage and Series A firm. We don't invest in napkin ideas. But Sam, we've had a four-year you know, history together. I, I, I know who you are in terms of we had a relationship. You know who some of my previous investors were and would have guaranteed that they would have backed me again. And you said, look, I'm, I'm willing to give you a chance. And at the same time, you were starting to reposition upfront. And one of the things that you wanted to implement was an entrepreneur in residence program. Mm -hmm. And for me, I felt very fortunate because it's, I think it's typically reserved for someone with a lot more clout than myself, maybe a senior executive of a portfolio company that you've worked with in the past. But you said, look, I've known you and I just, I love this idea. I, I know you probably had even a personal story or two related mm -hmm. to dealing with storage. And you said, look, it's just one of those things that's so simple to understand. Um, that someone like your mom or my mom would use. Uh, so you gave me an opportunity to fly out and you said, look, uh, you have to pitch my partners. Mm -hmm. And now I had to interview with all your partners at your firm and the associates. I remember I, I literally talked to every person about this idea called MakeSpace. Mm -hmm. And I had no more than a PowerPoint presentation on what I think the opportunity could be or or what, what it is that I wanted to achieve ultimately with the business. And I flew out and you said, look, I'm gonna make an investment, right? And, and you can describe a little bit more about how, LP, uh, how uh, venture funds are, are set up, but rather than this being out of a, a management fee, this was an investment in my company. I didn't get a salary. Um, I had been given an investment to start a business. I had to pay for my own healthcare. I had to set up a corporation. And as a result, I had a ticking clock. And when I got to your office, on, I'll never forget the day, it was January 14th, 2013. Uh, four days later, the first lines of code were written uh, for MakeSpace. And in that time, I had already found a friend of a friend who was very close to me, and I was actually very close with this person's former boss, yeah. to start writing those lines of code. So again, I want to rewind. Sure. Uh, I always say the interesting thing about persistence is so many people contact me, so many people pitch me, so few people follow up. It's so weird, I don't understand it, how people don't do that. Um, and I got back to the office, I was in New York, I flew um, back, I went to my assistant Tasha, and I said, look, I need you to block out some time on the calendar with the partners uh, in the next few weeks. There's this guy, Sam Rosen, he's gonna come out, I want you to block out time. She goes, Mark, it's already booked. 
I said, what do you mean it's already booked? Oh, Sam called me when you were in New York or whenever. Like, <laughs> right away, like, I get back and it's already booked and I knew I had my guy. Thank you. So it was good. Um, what have you, well, I want to talk, uh, I want you to give some advice on funding because sure. there's one interesting thing about funding, which is everyone thinks it's super easy for guys like you who are connected and know people. But we went out to raise a small round, like a million and a half dollars. And we had agreed to do about a third of it. Yep. And we would have probably done more, but we were saying, let's see who else is interesting. And people like hung around the rim, hung around the rim, hung around the rim. And then all of a sudden it became oversubscribed and people were complaining they couldn't get in. That's the weirdest thing about funding that people don't understand is no one's interested and then everyone's interested. I'd like you to tell the actual story. Yeah, and what's really fascinating about this, my sister being an AP psychology teacher, it's kind of like activation threshold with a, with a neuron firing. And the easiest analogy is, is a toilet. You can push and a little bit of water trickles and a little bit of water trickles and then once you hit a point of no return, the toilet flushes. Right? And that's actually the same way in neuron fires. And fundraising is very similar. It's like you're getting a little trickle, maybe a little interest, and people are kind of hanging around. Next thing you know, boom, you're oversubscribed. So you agreed to uh, give us. But, okay, I'm going to like <laughs> puncture that metaphor of yours. Uh, fundraising is not quite like a toilet. Um, fundraising is like high school. The fundraising process is like flushing a toilet. Fundraising process is like flushing a toilet, as in my money goes down the drain. Um, no, here's, here's what I mean, is I always give this analogy, and it's maybe I try not to be gender biased about it, but let's talk about American high school. Sure. There's something called the prom. Yep. And every guy I knew in high school, like they kind of knew who they were thinking about asking to the dance. Yep. But, you know, first of all, most guys are, lazy and don't take action and don't want to admit to other people that they want to make a commitment to somebody else. And have no manners. No manners, lots of other <laughs> things. But they kind of know who they want to ask, but they wait and they wait and they probably are nervous and thinking about how to do it. And I know how it happens, how every boy in America asks a girl to the prom when they hear someone else is going to do it. And then boom, they're going to ask before lunchtime because if I let lunchtime go, Tom, I might that's not right, get Tom in. Tommy's going to ask after school. And venture capitalists are the same. Sure. They're all, I'll steal your word from me yep. earlier, they're all fucking lemmings. Yep. And they only want what they can't have. And there's a that's term right. for it called FOMO, fear of missing out. That's right. And so the weird thing is, and I say this about every deal I do, there's all sorts of people hanging around the rim who might like to write a half a million dollars or a quarter million dollars or two million dollars, cannot make up their mind. Right. I submit a term sheet and suddenly everyone complains to me, why didn't you create room for me? I'm like, dude, you had like three months to fund this thing yourself. I mean, you're a rare breed, right? And, and a lot of investors- No, I'm not looking for that. <laughs> I just want to say- well, I mean, I've been there, right? I just want to say for people to learn, you need an anchor. You need that first commitment, even if it's 50K, 100K, say, like- And the biggest thing is, you know, one of those, one of those big differentiators between you and maybe other VCs is you have that graph. You have an understanding, that, that y-axis of the number of points that we've, we've done. Right? So if I take that first meeting with you very early, you saw me when I had just left city, you know, when I just left banking, or you had seen me after I raised, you know that I can raise capital because I raised half a million dollars. So you're not sitting out there, if I give this guy, if I commit to this person half a million dollars, is he going to be able to pull down a one Yeah, but truthfully, down? I can tell that anyway. 
I know the kind of people who will be able to raise capital, whether they've ever raised capital or not. I know mm -hmm. the archetype. Yeah. And it, it's important to me. It's not everything to me. Mm -hmm. But I do know the archetype because, you know, it's an industry of lemmings. Sure. And uh, I don't want to say I'm different than other people. There's many, many good VCs. I just want people to learn the lesson, which is you need an anchor. And some people call it social proof, and it's a term from psychology also, which is somehow we as human beings, whether we admit it to ourselves or not, when other people want something, we want that thing. Yep. And we can all try to pretend like we're smarter and we're different and we're venture capitalists. And I went to Harvard, which I didn't, but if I went to Harvard, it'd probably be tattooed on me. And uh, <laughs> Uh, Where would you tattoo it? Oh, I have a friend who went to Harvard Business School and it's tattooed on the back of his neck. But listen, <laughs> the funny thing about Harvard Business School, and I'll apologize to anyone in the audience or on camera who went, but the funniest thing about Harvard Business School is you simply cannot talk to someone who went to Harvard Business School without the fact that they went to Harvard Business School coming out in the first five minutes of your conversation. Is it, am I right? My brother went to Harvard Law School, am I right? the same thing. Right, so, uh, but they should be proud. They, they should. should be proud. And so anyway, uh, the, the anchor tenant, right? You, you already know, but like, for example, Gary V, sure, or Dave Morin, or sure. I don't know, MG Siegler, or you know, someone with a name, Michael Arrington. It, it doesn't matter who's respected. Then other people. So when I first got into venture capital, it was Reed Hoffman. He was not yet at Greylock, and everyone I knew. Even the smartest people I knew in Silicon Valley, like, I'd say, hey, what are you thinking about such and such deal? I kind of like it. I'm thinking, oh, well, let me send it to Reed and see what he thinks. I'm like, has all of Silicon Valley outsourced their brains to Reed Hoffman? But it was like that. Yeah. And it is like that. And so That's if right. you can find a way, and the way I tell people to get an anchor is you make that person an advisor. Sure. Cut them a deal. Make it like they get half off. Like, yeah. the strange thing about rich people is they still want a deal, right? And I always say that's how they got rich in the first Even place. Even the richest ones we know. Yeah, but, right? Yeah, exactly. Like we won't, he who is, Voldemort, right? He yeah. who should not be named. But they got rich for a reason. That's right. And so the way I suggest it is, because you don't want to sound desperate, but you want to say, look, I know how the industry works. Sure. If I can get you in, I know I have 20 other people lined up who will come in but it's hurting cats. Sure. So what I would like to do is spend as much time as it takes to convince you that I'm backable. And what I'd like to do is offer you a discount to everybody else who comes in. I think that's a great option. The second, what I did actually to raise my very first 50,000 bucks other than Dave coming in who got a, a sweetheart deal. Uh, I actually structured two different convertible notes. And the second one I knew I was going to do um, not too long after. So I told the first investor, and maybe this was a little, I don't think I misled anyone, but I, I said to the first investor, I'm going to give you, I think my first money was at like a three million cap on a previous business. And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to have $200,000 or $250,000 on a three million dollar mm -hmm. cap. And as soon as that started to fill up, I already knew that I would start planning another one on a five million dollar cap. So I would then start saying to people, look, I'm going, I'm only raising $200,000, $250,000 on this, on this convertible note, and it's almost full. And it was almost full. We had 50 or $100,000 in. That's about halfway done. Zero is almost full. <laughs> You're always almost full. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I know entrepreneurs who've done crazy things like call a VC from another VC's office. The VC sees the number yeah. of the other VC's office and their name on the speed dial and they say, hello? If you're going to play games, okay, just to be clear, if you're going to play games, make sure you're good at it. Yep. Well, I, I remember someone saying to me, you I have know, to create your own heat or you, get out you, of the kitchen. Yeah, I, I get that. Look, VCs play games. It's okay to play games. Do it ethically. Sure. Do it subtly and don't get caught. That's right. Because you get caught like it's reputational, right? Yeah, I mean, there was nothing that I ever did that, uh, and nothing that I think that placing a phone call from one VC to another, but you're right. Like, that's that trying to ask someone to the prom uh, before lunch because you know someone else will want to ask. Yeah, I remember when Tristan Walker was in EIR at Andreessen Horowitz yeah. and he was ex-Foursquare yep. and he and I had been friends for many years and we were connected on Foursquare and I noticed he checked in at every VC he went to. <laughs> I'm like, ah, that's clever. It's clever. That's right. But like, you, you know, it's okay to have an angle. Just be subtle with it. Sure. Um, so you raise some money and let's say that that first round of like a million and a half, it didn't come together as quickly as you might have liked. No, it didn't. It was actually significantly more of a, almost a struggle than I would have thought. And you actually committed to a, a sizable amount of it. Yeah. Um, that next person I really had to convince over the line, it was uh, lowercase capital. Yeah. And Matt Mazio and I, Matt Mazio and I actually started building a great relationship and you had an even yeah. better relationship. But at a certain point, I was worried that it was really going to be Mazio and Lowercase and you guys, and we weren't going to be able to fill and up the, the round. The issue, because I talked to everybody at yep. the time, Mazio believed in you, believed in the business, to be clear, because I got the story from yep. him. You had software. But we had no you hadn't, You hadn't operationalized it. So they're like, yep. will the concept work? Right. Is Sam a software guy or an ops guy? I don't know. Do you, you know him better than I do. What right. do you think? And it's not that they didn't want to commit, it was like trying to get over that, will this really work? That's right. And, and we even, like one of my favorite investors in the world, who shall not be named, uh, on the East Coast, um, said that's the reason they didn't want to invest, because they weren't convinced you could operationalize it and it wasn't up and running. That's right. Um, and we managed to get those people over the line. And I will tell you what I told them. And this is why I think supportive investors matter. And I'm gonna sound like I'm patting myself over the back. I really just more wanna do it instructionally for why VCs matter, why supportive investors matter, is I said to them simply this, I will write the next check. No matter what, I will write the next check. I can't promise you this investment's gonna work. I can't promise you I'm gonna write a $5 million check but I will at least give Sam enough time to prove this out. Yeah. So you only have that risk that we'll have at least 18 months cash and I will write the next check, even if it's taking time. Now, if Sam is an absolute dolt, I reserve the right to say, okay, I was wrong. You know, he spent too much time in Columbia, but um, <laughs> you know, I can't 100% guarantee, but I gave as strong an indication as yeah. I could. And they're like, okay, I'm in. And then I wrote a blog post announcing it. That's right. And what happened next? We timed it that you wrote a blog post and we had $300,000 left on AngelList actually. You said we actually had our first, very first board meeting uh, or informal board meeting. And you said, I'm gonna write a blog post. And I said, perfect, the SEC just changed the rules around general solicitation. Let's raise the final 300 grand of this. We had 1.2 close. Uh, we wanted to be at 1.5. And in a way, because we didn't need 300 grand, right. in a way, we saw this as our marketing opportunity right. because AngelList is f it's phenomenal at many things, 
but it's phenomenal at marketing. That's right. Putting the message out there that the game is in town. You've got Mark Schuster behind this. You've got Chris Sock and Matt Mazzio behind this. You've got High Peaks behind this in New York yeah. City. They're collaborative fund. Collaborative well. fund. Yeah. I apologize for forgetting. Collaborative fund. And you know this is a real deal. And what happened? Uh, within four days, we had uh, completely. The round was. I mean, immediately we had. We were going out for two hundred fifty thousand, three hundred thousand dollars, completely full. And then and it was going to be one point five. It was going to be one five, one five yeah. total. And then within about a week and a half, the phone started to ring from big VCs who didn't know about it, and people from you know whether it was partners from big VCs or uh, very wealthy uh, individuals who are active angel investors that said, how come I didn't hear about this? Deal? And what happened to me is people on AngelList were saying, I talked to Sam, he says the round's closed, this couldn't be, surely you can take an extra 100K. Right. That's right. And we upped the round to 2-1. Yeah. Right. And you, you keep the price the same? Did you change the price? So we actually built it off of the pre-money price, and we were fortunate enough to have a supportive investor <laughs> who let us go off the pre, not off the post. Uh, but we had we wrapped it up pretty quickly, and from one three to two one, it happened within less than sixty days. Right. The, pretty much the same terms. Now you rolled it out in New York City. What was the consumer? How did you make consumers aware this existed? How did you acquire customers? Yeah. What were the early days like? So I moved back June 1st, and from June 1st till basically early September, uh, it was literally me and two other guys, my, my co-founders in the business, no joke, running around to anyone we could get to try our service for free, um, dropping off you know, cartons at their home, <laughs> picking them up and taking them away to a storage unit. In the very beginning, it was literally How did you train those drivers? No, no, it was us. <laughs> it was literally us. So we actually, the crazy thing is we use uh, Manhattan Mini Storage uh, Locker as our, as our warehouse, a New York City taxi cab as our transportation vehicles, and ourselves as the drivers. And we said to ourselves, like, if we can't get people to give their, their stuff for free, then we have a, a, a much bigger problem. But we knew that this would work. We just literally had to figure out what does it look like? And at a certain point, we started renting zip car vans instead of taking uh, New York City taxi cabs. And then we started renting zip car vans so much that it made more sense to lease a Mercedes-Benz Sprinter van. And then wait, yeah, wait a because second. A You're a startup. Yeah. and you leased a Mercedes. That's right. Benz? Well, you know, a zip van is about 150 bucks a day, uh, all in for you to rent. Okay. And the Mercedes-Benz Sprinter van is like 900 bucks a month not including insurance and gas and all the other things. So you can see the break, you know, the, the, the inflection point pretty quickly. And why wasn't it a Hyundai van? It was <laughs> they're, actually, they're actually, so you're from, you've spent time in Europe, they're actually really durable, they're really long lasting vehicles. Okay. I mean, these things do hundreds and hundreds of thousands of miles. Plus, uh, you need to be able to stand up in the vehicle as opposed to kind of like a E350 Ford truck that you've probably ridden to camp in, yeah. the 15 passenger vans, you can't stand in that thing all day. So that's actually what all of the delivery people in New York City now, uh, uh, and actually ha have been in Europe for a long time. Not just you guys, but that's the standard issue that's delivery. The, that's the standard issue, that's right. Okay. So we, we decided to rent one of these vans and we actually, well, there's nowhere to park it in New York City. What, what, what kind of um, metrics do you feel comfortable talking about just to share either in terms of customer satisfaction yeah. or in terms of usage and adoption? I don't want to out you, so. Sure, you know, when we, literally in December, when we sat down at our first informal board meeting, I told you I had 20 customers, mm -hmm. and you looked at me and you said, name your friends and family on this list. And we went, <laughs> <laughs> like, you have five customers. Yeah, and I'll yeah. never forget the first customer, by the way, because she found us because she Googled storage 
Chinatown. She lived in Chinatown. Yeah. And the Google Maps pin showed up. Okay. <laughs> so she clicked and said, oh, I want to come drop off my stuff. Like, we like ran, grabbed the phones, like, and it was my cell phone. And we said, no, well, we come to you. So we went out and bought Uniqlo shirts around the corner, which were green, and walked over to her house. <laughs> oh, the, 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 the car's around the corner. Yeah. Meanwhile, it was our office like a block and a half away. And we slept these boxes back to our office. Um, Today we're running, you know, we're a 35 person company, thousands and thousands of, uh, of bins in our system. And is it official how much capital you've raised? We've raised $10.1 million in total. Uh, we are the number one rated, thank you sir. We are, you, and, you, and you did write a big check in the next round and the next round. Um, we, we are the highest rated consumer storage company in New York. We've got over 100 five star Yelp reviews on Yelp, which blows away the competition, and around a 75 uh, NPS, uh, which is a net promoter score. And how does one find out their net promoter score? What should I aspire to have my net promoter score be? Yeah, so you ask your customers on a scale of one to 10 how likely they are to uh, refer you to a friend. And you basically add up the eights, nines, and tens. Uh, you subtract, and those are the promoters. You subtract the ones, twos, and threes, which are detractors, and you wipe out uh, the four, fives, and sixes in between. And uh, great brands, actually, um, USAA has, I believe, the highest net promoter score in, in I believe, any, out of any company. Second, I believe, is Apple. And USAA is around 85. So to be anything above 50 is really, really Interesting good. thing is USAA could offer any product and I would buy it. Yeah. I have been the most loyal customer since 16 years old. It's a wonderful company. Yeah. And if you can inspire that kind of brand loyalty, and as VCs, we look a lot at things like Net Promoter Score, because that gives us a sense of whether or not customers are satisfied with That's what right. you do. And you know, actually, you wrote something really interesting in, in the post when you announced our, our, our Series A, which was uh, the due diligence of reading our, our customer satisfaction reviews mm -hmm. on Yelp. And you know, oftentimes you go to, to Yelp to see people complain about problems at a restaurant or problems with a local service provider. And this was a, a place where customers were by far ranking us really, really highly uh, in terms of how happy they were, which was completely uncommon for something so unsexy as storage, which most of, our com most of the complaints you see for competitors are, it was dingy, there was drug dealers, there's homeless people sleeping in the units, there's rats, and ours are, this is convenient, there's great service, the people what are What I said to my partners when you weren't there is I said, look, the thing about Uber, there's lots of stuff about Uber, but the thing about Uber in the days where it was just a black car service, mm -hmm. I said, the experience for anyone in a city to get transportation when you need it in an important time for meetings, it's terrible. I don't know a single person who enjoys that process. And Uber made it a pleasure. And so it was almost like they could have any amount of money they wanted. It was such a pleasure to use Uber. And Virgin America, now flying is flying and it's a hassle, but like they just make it a little bit nicer than the next sure. guy and it's a real pleasure. I have never in my life met a single person who had anything good to say about their storage provider. And I said to them, I think this is a chance to build the first real brand in storage, both that people are passionate about and that actually changes how storage works. Because if I'm in New York City and I have a bunch of sweaters in my closet, it's like, is it worth buying boxes packing my stuff, schlepping out to whatever location, putting in a four by six room, like, is it worth doing that? But if it's as simple as someone drops off a box, picks it up for me, I have a picture, I know what's there, ship it back to me in five months, and 
I mean, you can create, I think, an incremental market. And that's what I said to my partners then. And the other thing, and I eventually wrote about this, was for me, it's like the reverse of Amazon. Because Amazon, I mean, retail had all these physical stores. And suddenly, Amazon had a cost advantage because they cent had centralized distribution. And they could deliver it to you faster than the local guys. Or then you don't have to schlep. It comes to you. And you think about storage. Most storage companies are now run like property companies. And that property is archaic because we can centralize, stack high, store for cheap, and ship it back to you. Right. And we can do the reverse of Amazon. I think it's a billion dollar idea. Yeah, one of the things that you constantly remind me of, of is, uh, is having a product that's 10x better. Mm -hmm. right? uh, someone actually. And I have to credit, it's Bill Gross who oh, so, said that. So then it's Bill Gross. But, well, he said it to me and I repeat it all know, the time. I, I was actually speaking with uh, Joyce from Upfront before, and I, I am flying Virgin tonight. And she made a comment about you know, the intro video when, uh, when they're talking about buckling up. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's just an intro video, but it's, it's like the only one that I actually ever watched. Yeah. Right? It's funny, it's, like, it's almost like Glee meets an intro video. Right? Yeah. And it's comical, but that's, a, that's literally, you want to talk about 10x better. It's from walking on, the cool lights, and the even to the seatbelt video being so much better than, the, than the, the, all the other experiences out there. And that's constantly what we strive for. So one of the blog posts teed up in my queue that I haven't written about yet, just to bring out another lesson, it reminds me of this intro video, the, uh, the boarding video. What differentiates amazing companies from pretty good companies for me is attention to detail. Yeah. If you think about what made Steve Jobs Steve Jobs is his maniacal focus on every last detail of the phone, every last detail of how it looked and how it was presented. But when he spoke on stage, ask anyone the stories, maniacal about the story and the sequence and the time it started and secrecy and who sat where. That attention to detail, I promise you, differentiates the 0.01%. And it, it really matters, and I pay attention to it. And I'm, when I write it, I'm going to tell a story about a company that I invested in that didn't have attention to detail. And I'm going to try to make it generic enough that I don't have to mention it's not you. Um, but generic enough to like get that point across, because I have enough data points now to observe it. Yeah. If you're not maniacal about the service that you provide, you simply will not be the best. That's right. So anyway, you then had Adam, who was your co-founder and technical partner. It was time to add more people. How did you decide how to bring on your first early employees and your senior execs? Yeah, because we're an operations-focused business, uh, our first employees were literally helping us, whether it was customer support uh, or then soon to be marketing. And we very quickly had to scale up across kind of mul multiple different areas. I almost likened it to putting it together a table. Like we couldn't screw on engineering all the way because if we screwed on engineering all the way, we would have missed customer support, we would have missed operations. And my other business partner, Rahul, he spent about seven months in that. I know, but that was the one I was fishing for, right? Like, <laughs> so added another... We, I was going to say, the, the third person, really, which yeah. is, you know, you're fishing for it, but yeah. the, 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 the third person was uh, Rahul Gandhi, which uh, one of my close friends who I had known for about four years. And Rahul was a, a VC formerly himself. And he was always the guy that I, when I had a crazy idea. So he had left VC. He was doing something else. No, he was at VC. I know. Okay, I'm fishing for that. <laughs> All right, let me get it. So, you said he was a VC. So he was a VC. I had this idea. He was your I freaking told him, VC. I, no, he no, quit no. his job. Well, I'm, I'm getting there. Yeah. So I told you about the idea. Yeah. 
he, I told him I'm going yeah. out, and he's like, you got you to gotta do this. You got to yeah. do this. You got to do this. I went there in March. Yeah. I was starting to think about raising a round, and I sent it to Rahul saying, hey, we're going to start looking at raising a round of capital. And in diligence for uh -huh. investing, this is when Rahul said, I have to be a part of it. And asked me, he literally called me up. In and said, diligence, he quit his VC job and joined you as your co-founder. Right. I think that's an awesome that's story. Right. And even more importantly, he's an Eagles fan. Yeah. He's got good taste. <laughs> Talk a little bit about company culture. Yeah. It's so hard to build good company culture now. Some people want to join startups now as get rich quick schemes. You know, it's yeah. like there's so much focus around startups and startup culture and the craziness. Like how do you think about culture and establishing a good company culture? You know, one of the things is consistently reminding employees that we're building something for the long term. In fact, I saw one of my friends, and it's a total tangent, but I saw someone tweet something about, uh, we're a new company and we're, we're likely in the crosshairs of an acquisition from Google or Facebook. And that was like their recruiting pitch to my friend who's an engineer. And I'm thinking to myself, that's the opposite of what we want to do. We're not thinking about our exit strategy. We're thinking, I mean, we're literally thinking we can take this company public. When I, when I find employees who are probably a lot similar to myself in terms of their values, especially in terms of behavioral interviews, I'm really looking for someone who wants to come aboard and build something. Um, our head of marketing, Ryan Harmon, he's just a brilliant creative mind. He had previously spent time building uh, Zipcar from about 5,000 members in New York to over 100,000 members. He had done a lot of the early work with Zico Coconut Water when they were battling out with uh, Vita Coco. And the incentive for him wasn't as much around money or around equity. And he's obviously very happy with where he stands. But it was around building something brand new that's never been done before. In fact, my email to him on LinkedIn, because it was totally cold, was I, I want to know if you want to do to the storage business what you did to the car rental business. And, he, and that was what really responded to him. So when I think about building culture, it really starts with recruiting the types of people that I think just like what you look for in entrepreneurs, what I think would be somewhat like myself in terms of the passion about what we're actually building. Um, the second thing is how do we kind of maintain that culture uh, going forward? And it's one of the challenges that I face as a, as a CEO all the time. I want to run a transparent culture, but at the same time, don't want to be overly transparent because it's very difficult to ride this, this roller coaster of entrepreneurship. So one of the things that I do is whether it's a shared calendar of what my daily activities are or my uh, objectives, objectives and key results, which are what I'm trying to achieve the next 90 days in a software management program called Asana, that people can literally see me checking off the box. Um, well, that's one of the ways that I, that I help build a, a meritocratic So in uh, a way, you're itself. willing to be held accountable to your employees for what right. you're achieving. That's absolutely right. And more importantly, you know, there, there's, I think when you talk about that attention to detail, it's the little things, right? It's the little things that we do in the office. Um, for example, I will clean up my dishes in the, if they're in the sink and if I put them there. So it's funny you mention this because if somebody comes and presents to me and they have a completely rumpled shirt right. or they clearly like, they, they open their notebook and it's totally disorganized and yeah. you know they're late to a meeting or whatever. And look, everyone's late, myself included. Um, everyone forgets things, myself included. But you can just tell the people, I mean, you are like almost, you're, you OCD. must be, well, I was going to say OCD. I was going to choose the nicer word, anally retentive. Sure, thanks. Um, isn't that nicer than OCD? Um, Absolutely. And, but I, I look for that. I look for the weirdest signs. I was um, asking a recruiter just this week, what do you look for? Because I, like, I, I want to get inside his brain. What do you look for? 
Because if he can't tell me and articulate what he looks for, then if I don't trust him and he yeah. looks for the same things, I so he's like, um, I look at whether they have typos in their CV. I look at whether the color of the paper is a professional appropriate. I look at their shirt and do they tuck it in. I look, and, and on one hand it sounded like kind of weird and creepy, and on the other hand I loved it. Yeah. And it's just, it's attention. I mean, I, we talk about being late. I, one of the biggest challenges I think we actually talked about at our last board meeting was we are, we're looking for a VP of acquisition, of, uh, acquisition marketing. Mm -hmm. And we found the best person in New York City for us. And she, was, she is fantastic. And she showed up to the first meeting about 35 minutes late, so missed my time slot. Uh, I then had her come by, and she was on time for the second interview. And for the third interview, which was one-on-one -on -one with me, it was supposed to be one hour, she was 45 minutes late. And it was like two, you know, two out of three times, more than 30 minutes, second and 45 minutes late. And the team was really split. Some of the members said, look, she's the best candidate out there. Like we, we are in desperate need of this position. It will help us grow so much. She really understands our business. She had, she had a previous experience. And I said, yeah, but that's not the culture we have here. I said, our drivers show up at eight o'clock in the morning if that's the time that first appointment is. And we're not going to run the dual culture where one part of our business has to be on time and the other time, the other part of the business, it's okay. So what I will say about timeliness as someone who doesn't have it, <laughs> um, there are moments you must be on time. Yeah. Not just for your airplane, but for an interview. Like, it's just not acceptable. If it's not important enough for you in an interview right. to turn up a half hour or 45 minutes early, you know, there's something wrong with you. That's right. And, uh, no, legitimately. I, I agree completely. But, but the thing you need to know about some people who are not timely is it's actually a trait of ADD. Mm. And as you know, because I'm pretty open about it, I have ADD, and I don't have the... Uh, stereotypical, you know, I'm a tech entrepreneur VC, I have ADD, but I have ADD. And what I learned about ADD, and, and by the way, super successful executives have ADD, uh, the founder of JetBlue being one of them, I read this wonderful book called Delivered from Distraction that explains all this, is um, your frontal cortex uh, doesn't uh, kind of fire up as fast as someone who doesn't have ADD. And so people with ADD have a way uh, through history and DNA of stimulating their frontal cortex. They tend to drive very fast, which of course I don't do. They tend to show up at meetings late. They tend to be argumentative. They tend to oversalt, oversugar. And of course the classical ADD inability to focus on one activity for long periods of time, but have lots of things lots of balls in the air. And, you know, I've read so much about ADD, and luckily my wife has too, so that she tolerates my lateness a tiny bit more. But I just, it's, it's I, I can't, I know the difference for the meetings I must be on time yeah. for, and for the other stuff, like, I have this great excuse. Yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> but for a job that you'd really want. I would never be late. Right. I would never. Or a deal there. that you're trying to win. Or an LP I'm raising That's money right. from. That's right. So that, you know, that transparency at the same time with my organization says, yep, this is a hit on me and I take responsibility uh, for you know, being behind on the recruiting side of things. That's a huge, that's something for me that I have. I want to make with. sure if anyone does have questions. I scanned a few times, I didn't see hands. You don't have to ask questions, but I don't want to hog it. Anyone, Bueller, 
okay, as long as I don't feel guilty about it. Um, what, do you, what do you make right now of the New York City startup scene? What do you make of the LA startup scene? You don't have to say nice things or bad things about either, sure. and San Francisco. You've been in all three, you said it before. Every entrepreneur. But rather than bad things, yeah. how do they differ? Yeah. So one thing that I think I constantly hear as a challenge from my friends, and I've got a ton of friends in San Francisco, one of the challenges they have, anyone who's a CEO and runs a company, is loyalty. Is that there are big established tech companies, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Yahoo, uh, that essentially, uh, Apple, are at a bidding war for talent. And if you're, at a, if you're an engineer, or you're really you know, an operations person, you're very seasoned, and you go to one of those companies, if you have a bad day, you're about to walk out, you literally can walk out and go down the street and find another job. And what I constantly hear is a challenge is obviously that, uh, that loyalty to uh, my friends' companies. It's, it's something that as a startup is very difficult. But at the same time, what I think Silicon Valley does extremely well as a result of having those companies is exits. But I, I, I wanna push back there. In New York and LA, in this market, if you can't find a job and you have tech industry skills, sure. there's something wrong with you. And I only say that because you want to hire people who could walk down the street and get other jobs. That's absolutely the right. The difference is this. It's cultural. Silicon Valley has a culture that has been established, a pattern over the last 12 or so years that I'm going to work with you for two or three years, and if I'm not feeling it, bro, I'm out of here because I got my 50% vesting. The reason I point that out is in booming tech markets like we're in, it's a real problem. And that has been exacerbated by Y Combinator and by all the angel money that's available because every tech entrepreneur feels like, well, I want my shot. And so loyalty is very low in Silicon Valley. I'm not criticizing Silicon Valley. It's a cultural reality of being there. And it's accepted. And because it's accepted, you're not a pariah for going for two years. And actually what's happening now in Silicon Valley, many people don't know this, it's not well written about, is that there are norms. And the norms change over time. And the norm used to be you vest over four years with a one-year cliff. 25, 25, 25, 25. And what people are doing is backloading vesting and creating a ramp, 15%, 20%, on up to 40%. And therefore, you leave after two years, you might leave with 35% of your stock rather than 50. That may seem mean, but it, I actually don't think it is. I know someone is doing a six-year vest, actually. I, I look at employees. it simply this way. I look at it as... Um, Stock options are meant to be an incentive. They should be a privilege. It is not a right. It's a privilege that you get to own part of this company. And I believe in that privilege. I believe in spreading it as wide as you can. But if someone comes and leaves 16 months after they joined, they simply did not contribute that much to a 12 or 15 or eight or six year company. And I'm not saying they deserve nothing. Sure. I'm not saying that at all. But the people who are really there and loyal deserve more. Absolutely. And I, I, so it's and like changing. I, said, I have a friend who did a six-year. But that's best. only that's only common now in Silicon Valley because of this issue. Interesting. So to New York's uh, point, I actually I, I previously worked at Seamless, 
And the density of New York, I think, is one of its major advantages. Uh, the ability, when I was at Seamless, to walk down the street and try to sign up 100 restaurants, I didn't have to go more than five or six blocks. So that's actually the reason why we went back to New York to launch MakeSpace, is we knew it would be very easy, because of how dense it, densely populated it is, to get a significant so number of customers. Very because quickly. you are in a dense environment and people are forced to live in little tiny boxes <laughs> for super expensive and really cold weather. He's not selling anybody on why you should they, move to they, LA. They have to store their stuff in a storage facility. How is LA different? You know, the interesting, <laughs> the interesting thing for, Sorry. ready for this? Yeah. One in, so 30% of yeah. US homes can't fit one car into their two, can only fit one car into the two car garage. Okay, how many, what percent? About 30% okay. done by the Department of Energy. So literally there's stuff. I mean, we all have stuff. And I have literally done make space pickups from low income housing in Brownsville, Brooklyn to 15 Central Park West, which is one of the most expensive places to live in New York City. People have relative amounts of stuff to wear and what they can afford to live in. Right. So the interesting thing for a place like LA, and actually to force out a little bit, um, you know, we will be rolling out a solution in I would say the next few months that allows us to essentially offer a solution, offer the MakeSpace solution to people in Los Angeles. Uh, give a great example, actually. My parents live in the suburbs of New Jersey, which is very similar to LA, I imagine. Right. Not as spread out, but they've got a garage, they've got an attic, etc. So New Jersey is similar to LA? In the sense, in the, in the sense that they live in a home and not a, a shoebox. Okay. Right? That's it. No weather. <laughs> we, and we have a football team. Totally oh, sorry. Kidding. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that was fair. That was fair. <laughs> um, they're, they're moving out of my childhood home. And a lot of people in New Jersey root for the Eagles, just so you know. South Jersey, yeah. buddy. Like, let's, we, there's the, I'm not a football fan, I'm yeah. a hockey player, but yeah. the Giants fans. So, but no, <laughs> LA um, obviously has the weather, but it also actually indexed against San Francisco and New York is way more affordable. So, well, that was my third point on. I'm on, gonna on publish some data yes. next week, sure. which we've done some research to show the affordability. Awesome. And just so you know, LA graduates more engineers than anywhere else in the country. LA has more top 25 engineering schools than anywhere else in the country. LA is the most affordable of the major right. uh, tech zones in the country. It has more sunny days than any of the major tech zones in the country. Um, it's not a bad place. It's an amazing place, and I, I kind of wish I still lived here. Uh, if, I, if, I, if I believed in reincarnation, <laughs> and I don't, but if I did, I lived in New York. I love New York, so yeah. I don't, I'm just teasing you. Like, yeah. I'm a New Yorker. I'm Larry David. I'm like that <laughs> awkward like, guy who's a little bit of a pain in the butt. But um, that would be me. Listen, I want to be respectful of people's time. Sam, it not only has been a pleasure to interview today, not only has been a pleasure to work so closely with you on this project, I'm so proud of what you've achieved, but it's been a real pleasure to get to know you over the last five That's years. Right. So thank you for coming in today. Appreciate I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks.